much about books and schooling Cause there were more important things to do I just sit out in the yard and pick my old guitar Trying to do what the big hillbillies do I would sit there by the hour Picking wild flower Wore my little fingers to the bone Will I sit on never rest Till I am the very best The best guitar picker in this whole county This is Our American Stories. They called him Possum. We all know him as the great George Jones. That's him we're listening to now with a song of his own called Best Guitar Picker. George Jones achieved international fame for his long list of hit records as well as his distinctive voice. With a career spanning more than 50 years, Jones is regarded as one of country music's all-time greatest stars. As fellow country star Waylon Jennings once said, quote, If we could sound the way we wanted, we'd all sound like George Jones. With 13 number one country hits, three Grammys, and dozens of other awards, Jones tirelessly defended the integrity of country music, telling Billboard in 2006, quote, It's never been for love of money. I thank God for it because it makes me a living, but I sing because I love it, not because of the dollar signs. During his career, Jones had more than 150 hits, both as a solo artist and in duets with others. Born in Texas, Jones first heard country music when he was seven and was given a guitar at the age of nine. Like so many other famous musicians, George Jones began performing in the church. I didn't realize that uh, you even got paid for it. Uh, you know, at, at the beginning, uh, I, I started off singing in churches and things like that, and and I got to hearing, uh, you know, Roy Acuff and all of them on the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, I got my first guitar when I was about uh, nine or ten or something like that, and. I fell in love with it, and I I took that guitar with me everywhere I went. It was a little, had horses on it and ropes and Gene Archer's name, and it was Gene Archer guitar, and I I would take that to school with me. I'd hide it out in the little patch of woods and and pull leaves over it to hide it so nobody would come along and steal it. Young George Jones was given his first guitar lesson By the preacher's wife, he would then go to entertain passengers on the city bus with his music. The preacher's uh, wife, uh, Sister Annie, and she uh, taught me the basic cards like G, C, D, and and A, and what have you, F. And it all just came to me like it was just normal, you know. And that's that's when I started traveling. When we moved into Beaumont, the big city, you know, from Kuntz, I lived out in the country. We moved in there, and um, I would uh, I got to know everybody by taking that guitar with me on the the bus, the city bus lines. And uh, they got to where they knew me, and then didn't cost me nothing. I spend my days, you know, uh, going back to towards the back of the bus, get back there, and just start playing and singing and everybody acting like they enjoy it. And I thought that was the greatest feeling in the world, you know. So uh, I'd go to the end of one bus line, get on another bus, go to the end of it. 
and finally I'd get on the right one to get back home. And it was just, uh, I just loved it so much, couldn't stay away from it. Jones then moved from playing his music for people on the back of city buses to the top of the music charts. I started playing the, uh, the taverns and little, little things like that just to get some, just because I love to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't even know you, you're supposed to get paid. I was still naive about all that. And, uh, but then as I got a couple of years older, you know, you hear about these things, uh, the Grand Ole Opry going to Tennessee, and, oh, man, wouldn't that be something, you know? And, and of course, we'd, uh, we uh, got to thinking about, after I uh, got out of the Marine Corps, uh, they uh, got in touch with me on Star Day Records and wanted to see me when I got home. And I had my uh, first recording session in 55, 54. And uh, in, uh, in a living room of a house, uh, they had egg crates all over the wall to soundproof it a little. But you still, you'll still hear the 18-wheelers go by. But anyhow, you know, when we got our chance to to come and do a song on the opera when I had finally got Why Baby Why going, and that was the biggest thrill, you know, just to see your name in the in the charts, you know, and and people talking about it, and oh my goodness! Uh, and then when I and then I found out you can get money for it. You can get money for it. He left home at 16 and went to Jasper, Texas, where he sang and played on the KTXJ radio station with fellow musician Dalton Henderson. From there, he worked at the KRIC radio station. During one such afternoon show, Jones met his idol, Hank Williams. When I was a kid, I first met Hank, you know, in a, at a radio station where he had time to sit down and talk a few minutes with you. And he had to be the nicest guy I've ever, I've ever met in my life. So down to earth, so honestly talking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Hardly playing. You know, there was no put on about him or all this stuff, you know. And he had a big hit out at the time called Wedding Bells. I was going to play guitar with him on, on this radio show. Well, he had his guitar and he just started singing, I've got the invitation that you sent me, a wedding bell. And I'm standing on the other side of the mic. That's when the mic came out of the ceiling. And I'm standing there ready, ready to kick it off. Instead, he starts singing. Come to find out, he finished the song, and I haven't, I haven't hit a note. I haven't hit a note. And by the way, you can tell he remembers this like it was yesterday. Can you imagine, 16 years old, and the legend, the king of country music, walks in and is singing next to you, Hank Williams. When we come back, more on the life of George Jones here on Our American Stories, his life, his death. And my goodness, when you hear some of the country stars and rock and roll stars memorializing and talking about the life of George Jones at his memorial service, it'll move you. More after these messages. Now you might say to me, let's eat. I might say my name is Pete. And you say that yours is Go ahead and steal A life that isn't real Later I might 
same bill Cause there ain't no money in this deal The life of George Jones here on Our American Stories for the hour. Because, well, because. Jones served in the United States Marine Corps, was discharged in 1953, and married his first wife, Shirley Ann Corley, in 1954. His first record, No Money in This Deal, appeared on Starday Records, beginning the singer's association with producer and mentor H.W. Pappy Daly. The song was actually cut in Starday's Records co-founder Jack Starn's living room. Let's take a listen. Cause there ain't no money in this deal I mean it, baby There's no money in this deal Jones also worked at KTRM in Beaumont, Texas around this time And he acquired the nickname Possum while working there One of the DJs there started calling him Quote, George P. Williker Picklepuss Possum Jones because, quote, he cut his hair short like a possum's belly, had a possum's nose, and stupid eyes like a possum. <laughs> Tell me what you really think. And it stuck. It stuck. Jones's first hit came with Why Baby Why in 1955, peaked at four on the Billboard country charts that year. It was Jones's first single chart, following several unsuccessful singles released during the prior year. Jones' frequent songwriting partner, Daryl Edwards, was inspired to write the words after hearing an argument between a couple at a gas station. Tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why you make me cry, baby, cry, baby, cry, baby, cry. Lord, I can't ever love you till the day that I die, so tell me why, baby, why, baby, why, baby, why. Well, I've got a crow I want to pick with you. Just like last time when the feathers flew You're running wild, kicking up your heels Leaving me at home with a handful of bills Lord, I can't live without you, you know it's true But there's no living with you, so what'll I do? I'm going honky-tonk and get as tight as I can Then maybe by then you'll appreciate a good man in 1959, Jones had his first major number one on the Billboard country chart with White Lightning, written by J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper. And, of course, he went down with Buddy Holly on the day the music died. Let's take a listen to George Jones. Well, in North Carolina, way back in the hills, little my old pappy and he had him still. He brewed white lightning till the sun went down Then he'd fill him a jug and he'd pass it around Mighty, mighty pleasing, pappy's corn squeezing Ooh, white lightning In his 1997 autobiography, I Lived to Tell It All Jones recalls arriving for that recording session for White Lightning Under the influence of a great deal of alcohol And the track took approximately 80 takes to complete 
This was perhaps understandable since his lifelong friend, the Big Bopper, whose composition he was recording, had been killed, as we just noted, during the preceding week in that tragic ending of so many great musicians' lives. To make matters worse, Buddy Killen, who played the upright bass on the recording, was reported as having severely blistered fingers from having to play his bass part 80 times. Killen not only threatened to quit the session, but he also threatened to physically harm Jones for the painful consequences of his drinking. And by the way, we're going to get into more of that because there were painful consequences, but Jones ultimately got sober. And in his memorial service, my goodness, you hear so much storytelling about that. While touring, Jones met and played shows with Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. While just an acquaintance of Elvis, Jones would remain a lifelong friend of Johnny. Here's Johnny Cash and George Jones with I've Got Stripes. On a Monday, I was arrested. On a Tuesday, they locked me in the jail. On a Wednesday, my trial was attested. On a Thursday, they said guilty, and the judge's gavel fell. I got stripes, stripes around my shoulders. I got chains, chains around my feet. I got stripes. Stripes around my shoulders And them chains, them chains They're about to drag us down On a Monday I got my striped britches And on a Tuesday With Presley's explosion in popularity, though, pressure was put on Jones, well, to sound more like Elvis. His heart was never in it, and he quickly regretted the decision. Rocket was the rockability single by George Jones released under the pseudonym Thumper Jones, not wanting to use his real name and jeopardizing his reputation as a country artist. Let's take a listen. Well, I'm going down to the Calvary, gonna bop to every song. I'm gonna rock, rock, rock my blues away, we'll rock them all night long, but I need rockin'. Yeah, rockin', rockin', rockin'. Yeah, baby, when I'm rockin', I wanna rock it with you. And by the way, this is a theme we hear over and over again in our hour-long conversation with David Cobb. Cobb talked about a young singer-songwriter, not so young, Chris Stapleton, who did not like the way the labels were pushing around into various corners trying to be this flavor of the month or that flavor of the month. And all that David Cobb has done with his wonderful singer-songwriters is let them be who they are. We heard the same thing about Johnny Cash when Cash met a producer named Rick Rubin, and he got to just do Johnny Cash songs again. So these artists, they're vulnerable to this kind of stuff, and we love telling these stories here on Our American Stories. Jones signed with United Artists in 1962, and he immediately scored one of the biggest hits of his career, She Thinks I Still Care. His voice had grown noticeably deeper during this period, and he began cultivating a singing style that became uniquely his own. It remained on the Billboard survey for 23 weeks, six of them at number one. Just because I ask a friend about her Just because I spoke her name somewhere Just because I rang her number 
by mistake today She thinks I still care For the rest of the 1960s, Jones would score only one number one, 1967's Walk Through This World With Me, but he practically owned the country music charts throughout the decade. Jones's binge drinking and use of amphetamines on the road, though, caught up with him in 1967, and he had to be admitted into a neurological hospital to seek treatment for his drinking. Jones would go to extreme lengths for a drink if the thirst was on him. Here's George Jones with his friend Johnny Cash talking about their heavy use of drugs. I drank to start with quite a bit more, a lot more than I should have, and and uh, then when it seemed like everything in the world uh, was down on me, uh, that's when I didn't, I just didn't care anymore. We drank together, we took pills together, we got in trouble together, we suffered a lot of pain together, but we had some, what we thought were some great times together. And then when I just, when I was at that point, I knew there was no out, I just, there was no good thinking at all, I, there was no way out of it, so I just didn't care no more, so I went to the other stuff. I went to the heart, the, the, the drugs, and, and uh, then I really got in bad shape. I got down to about 105 pounds, they said, and I looked terrible. I looked awful. I sung terrible, and uh, I was terrible. I don't think I really was beginning to see it was out of control because I was so out of control I couldn't see anything. No, indeed. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of George Jones. And by the way, we heard similar stories when we did the Kurt Cobain hour. Uh, It was just tragic. The road, the life, the artist's life. There's just something about it that draws these guys, these girls to drugs. Janis Joplin, too, and so many greats. And it's a tough life. All the glamour, all the fame. But in the end, a lot of loneliness and a lot of sadness. When we come back for the hour, the life of George Jones, celebrating it. And we're going to take you to his memorial, and you can't believe who you'll hear from and what you'll hear here on Our American Stories. Whiskey, you're a sweet strawberry 
This is Our American Stories, and I really don't know how I can interrupt that song. That's Chris Stapleton with Justin Timberlake and Chris's remarkable wife, an incredible accompanist in her own right and singer, at the CMA Awards in 2015, singing, I believe, their favorite George Jones song together, a celebration of George Jones right here for the hour. And the most notorious Jones drinking story involves the country music legend and a John Deere lawnmower. But what a lot of folks don't know is that George Jones chose this slow-moving mode of transportation to procure alcohol more than once. The first and most well-documented lawnmower incident was the late 1960s. George was living eight miles outside of Beaumont, Texas, with his then-wife, Shirley Ann Corley. Jones, who was born in Saratoga, Texas, just west and north of Beaumont, had already experienced a few number one country hits by that time with the songs White Lightning, Tender Years, and She Still Thinks I Care. George's success fueled his wayward ways with alcohol, and he was drinking so bad, his wife Shirley resorted to hiding all the keys to the vehicles before she would leave so George wouldn't drive to the nearest liquor store in Beaumont. Boy, that's when things are bad. But that didn't stop him. After tearing the house apart looking for a set of keys, George looked out the window to see a riding lawnmower sitting on the property under the glow of a security light. The incident was later memorialized as part of country music lore in numerous songs and videos, including Jones's own honky tonk song in 1996. Looks like I'm gonna need some backup over here. Possum's at it again. Backup, zip backup, quick! I saw those blue lights flashing Over my left shoulder He walked right up and said Get off that riding mower I said, sir, let me explain Before you put me in the tank She took my keys away And now she won't drive me to drink I need a honky-tonk song A cold, cold beer A hardwood floor A smoky atmosphere A pocket full of change To last me all night long George Jones eventually married artist Tammy Wynette after their tours were booked by the same agency and their paths crossed. By 1980, Jones had not had a number one single in six years. Many critics began to write him off. However, the singer stunned the music industry in April when He Stopped Loving Her Today was released and shot to number one on the country charts, remaining there for 18 weeks. Here's George Jones talking about this time in his life and how this song came to be. This was uh, right when I was at my lowest point, and I was having all my problems. And I went in the uh, rehab, and I got straightened out. And as soon as I got out, I'd, I'd been carrying that song almost a year. And as soon as I got out and got straight enough, we went in to the studio with Billy Sherrill and recorded He Stopped Loving Her Today. And I said, it still ain't a hit because it's too sad, it's too morbid. 
They're not going to buy this record, but I love it because it's been on my mind for almost a year, so let's do it. Bobby Braddock and, and uh, Curly Putnam. And Bobby Braddock, is you wouldn't think a song like this would come from him because he's a funny character. Yeah. But I, I love his writing, and you wouldn't think a ballad like this, is that pretty, would come from somebody like Bobby Braddock. I told Billy, I said, please uh, talk to Bobby and Curly and, and see if they will write another verse and uh which came which did come uh and as a recitation the part where i at the end of the song where i do the verse and i i do the recitation yeah and millie does the high pretty uh <laughs> soprano voice whatever it is <laughs> and uh but that just made the song i said she's got to come back She's got to come back yeah. either now or some way in his life or before he dies or either at his funeral. And this is exactly what they wrote. And when I came out of rehab and got my life straightened out, this was the first record that I cut. This song became the single of the year for George. It became the song of the year in 1980. It also became the Country Music Association song of the year in both 1980 and 1981. And by the way, this song has become so synonymous with Jones that few singers dare to cover it. Here's why. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years went slowly by, she still prayed upon his mind. Kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Kept some letters by his bed It in 1962 He had underlined in red Every single I love you I went to see him just today But I didn't see no tears All dressed up to go away First time I'd seen him smile in years He stopped loving her today It plays the reef upon his door Stop loving her today When we come back, we're going to take you to George Jones' memorial service in 2013. You're going to hear from everybody. You're going to hear from Alan Jackson, Kenny Chesney, Kid Rock, Ronnie Millsap, Randy Travis, 
And Vince Gill and Patty Loveless, my goodness, whether you hear what they do, it's just so beautiful. They all share their memories, and you'll hear a few of them sing and pay tribute to the man they loved and admired. And by the way, the fact that George Jones was able to clean up his act and stay sober is a key part of what you'll hear coming up. The life of George Jones, celebrated here on Our American Stories. He stopped loving her today. I've had choices Since the day that I was born There were voices That told me right from wrong If I had listened No, I wouldn't be here today Living and dying With the choices I've made And that's George Jones in 1999, a great cover song. Jones, well, he was taking responsibility for his choices in that song, covering it. He did it in his life, too, and he got sober. And in 2013, he was scheduled to perform his final concert at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. On April 18, 2013, however... Jones was taken to Vanderbilt University Medical Center for a slight fever and irregular blood pressure. Following six days in intensive care, he died on April 26, 2013. He was 81 years old. On May 2nd, there was a memorial service. And my goodness, so many people came out. Let's take a listen to Vince Gill and Patty Loveless. Here, they share their memories of their friend. My favorite memory of all is, for some reason, George thought I liked ravioli. And um, <laughs> cases and cases of the worst ravioli you ever ate in your life wound up on my bus. I still have some if you'd like uh, some historical ravioli from Brother George. But, uh, Patty, would you like to say anything? I'm sure you would. Absolutely. You want me over here or over there? Say something. Oh, for me to say something. I think you've said it all. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, when Keith was talking about If My Heart Had Windows, when I recorded that song, I remembered that um, that they had played it on WSM, and uh, they got a, a call from some lady that had called in and uh, you know, said, well, that was really nice what she did, but she can't sing it like George Jones. And you know what? I totally agree. Vince Gill and Patty Loveless went on to sing Go Rest High on That Mountain to say goodbye to their friend, George Jones. You can hear Vince's voice break in this live tribute as he's overcome with emotion, tears pouring down his and Patty Lovelace's face. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. On earth 
By the way, you rarely hear in your life Vince Gill miss. And he missed because he just couldn't do it. He was tearing up. You ever get a chance, go to the video. You'll cry watching it. Kid Rock got up next, of all people. It turns out he wrote with George Jones and he was a friend of George's. And he shares a story about one of his first interactions with Jones early in their friendship. It was probably 10 years ago or so. First time I came into contact with George. And he'd asked me to write a song for him. And uh, I asked if I could pick his brain a little bit, get him on the phone. I called Nancy, who, by the way, at the time, I thought was his secretary. <laughs> I didn't know any better. Um, so she, I talked with her for a while about it. She put me on the, on the phone with him. And I said, uh, I said, I'd just like to pick your brain and see where you're at in life and what you're thinking to help me write something for you. And he said, I'll never forget, he said, um, I just wonder now that I've got my life together and so in love with Nancy, how Tammy and all these people would view me from heaven looking down now. And I thought, I just blurted out, oh, we need to write the ultimate drinking song. And he goes, no, 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 no. He said, I'm done singing those drinking songs. And he pointedly said it. And I tried to explain, you know, no, I'm talking about closure, this, that, and the other. And um, we spoke a bit more and I hung up and I, I wrote a song I wrote a verse and a chorus for a song that I never got to uh, give to him. And I'll just give you a little bit of it. It was called, uh, and the chorus said, I may be a little slower, but I'm still 12 steps ahead of you. I spent a lifetime getting sober, and I wondered if you knew that now I'm spending my days without the bottle, high in love with you. And, um, And you get to know why Kid Rock is Kid Rock. He can write. Country star Brad Paisley was up next to memorialize his friend with some heartfelt memories before he performed Me and Jesus. There are a lot of TV networks covering this today, and uh, there's probably a lot of young people watching. And you, you must be thinking, boy, they're making a ruckus about this guy. I would encourage you, if you don't know about him, to go find him now to go by his records and and see what all this ruckus is about because uh, it's worth it. Um, George loved young people and uh, going all the way back to seeing Randy Travis up here when he was a young new artist and, and you guys all but adopted and fed him and then Vince Gill and Alan Jackson and Kenny Chesney and later me, when I moved to town, uh, a completely lost, single, young, aimless guy that wanted to be a singer. You guys, 
I was very, very lucky to be one of the people that you decided you were going to adopt. And um, I remember I was living in a condo, a small condo in Brentwood, and got my first horse, which is so stupid. Um, and George said, well, son, you know, uh, just keep him out here at the farm. Some of the greatest memories of my life are going out there and working with that horse and seeing the golden voice in a golf cart come driving up and, and just want to talk. And, uh, you know... I, I'm lucky enough that I met George when he had when he had gotten right with with the Lord and with and had beat the demons and had and had found Nancy and God and you know uh, what it must be like to to be the maker that made him meeting him and. I just have to say that, I have to say that he is an inspirational story to all of us. If that man can live to 81 years old, all of us can, can fight against the things that, that bring us down. And next up was George Jones's pastor, Mike Wilson, who shared his favorite George Jones story. My favorite story was when we were truly introduced to George. My son, my oldest son, Dylan, has the opportunity to go to school with one of George's granddaughters. And Dylan came home one day and he said, Dad, Brianne's grandpa was at school signing autographs. I said, well, great, who's Brianne's grandpa? I don't know, some old guy. <laughs> and then he said, he had his wife with him. I don't know who is it. I don't know. He went to his backpack and pulled out this ratty piece of paper. And I remember looking at it and my jaw hit the floor and I said, Dylan, that is George Jones and Miss Nancy. And he looked at me and this is how George will forever be known in our house. No, dad, that's Brian's grandpa. And the whole night was just laughter, a lot of tears, and all celebrating the great George Jones. And for the hour, that's what we've been doing here on Our American Stories. His story, the folks who remember him, their story about George Jones, their stories about George Jones. And what came up again and again was his version of Amazing Grace. Mike Huckabee talked about it, Brad Paisley talked about it, Vince Gill talked about it. And so we figured we'd close the hour because the man had come to God late in his life or come back. And so let's take a listen to what is a perfect, a perfect rendition of this great, great gospel song. This is Our American Stories, the life of George Jones, celebrated by Nashville and rock and roll music's best. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in Music History. Take it away, Jesse. This Day in Music History, 1786, Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro premiered in Vienna. Scored for two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, two horns, two trumpets, timpani, and strings, a typical performance usually lasts around three hours. This day in music history, 1967, 32-year-old Elvis Presley married 21-year-old Priscilla, a girl he first met in 1959 when she was just 14 years old. Talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise. When Elvis got out of the army in 1960, she moved into the singer's Graceland mansion with her family's blessing. The wedding ceremony took place at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas, and though the marriage license was only $15, the wedding cake cost $3,500. The couple divorced after five years of marriage in October of 73. This day in music history, 1969, Bob Dylan recorded an appearance for the Johnny Cash Show at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. After two solo numbers from Dylan, Johnny Cash joined him on the stage for a rendition of Girl from the North Country. If you're traveling to the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there she once was a true love of mine. See for me that her hair's hanging down. It curls and falls all down her breast. See for me that her hair's hanging down. That's the way I remember her best. In this day in music history, 1972, The Eagles' Take It Easy was released. It was their first single. Written by Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry, recorded by The Eagles with Fry singing lead vocals, it became a signature song of The Eagles. Well, I'm running down the road, trying to loosen my load. I've got seven women. 
Jackson Brown and Don Henley talking about how that song was written. Take It Easy is a song that I started to write and Glenn finished. He had the four great singers, this huge bank of voices that could come in and he had that to work with and when they worked out the song it suddenly had this, you know, take it easy, take it easy. You know, we had this, you know, this arrangement sense that was just so great. He wrote the song and had become disenchanted with it and had sort of put it aside, put it on the shelf. And Glenn Fry, <clears throat> uh, who was a very astute arranger and uh, and, and a, a, a student of songwriting, r- recognized that there was something in that song that was perhaps better than Jackson had had imagined and, and encouraged Jackson to get it off the shelf. He said, let me know when it's done. I, well, he called me like two weeks later and said, is it done? <laughs> I said, well, I am. Yeah, I'm still working on my record, you know, I'll, but I'll, I'm going to do it, you know. So then he called me, then he waited about a month and he called me, he says, is it done? <laughs> I said, no, he said, you want, me to, you want me to finish it? And I went, no, I, I can finish it. I'll, I'll do it. Jackson ended up letting Glenn actually finish it. He came up with this great flatbed Ford thing, you know. I mean, that's, that's, that's like a real, you know, that's a transformation made right there. I mean, I dug the fact that all these, these women in Arizona were driving trucks appeal to me but it's a girl my lord in a flatbed ford you know and this day in music history 1976 the bellamy brothers went to number one on the u.s singles chart with let your love flow Born this day in music history, 1967, country superstar, singer, and actor Tim McGraw. It was Labor Day weekend, I was 17. I bought a Coke and some gasoline. And I drove out to the county fair. When I saw her for the first time, she was standing there in the ticket line. And it all started right then and there. Many of McGraw's albums and singles have topped the country music charts with the total album sales in excess of 40 million units in the United States alone. Here's McGraw talking about his earliest musical influences. I was a big Elvis fan as a kid. And, um, and my mom was a music fan. My mom's a big Elvis fan. And she I always listened to the radio a lot with her. So I knew Beach Boys songs and and I knew all those songs when I was a kid, and my stepdad was drove an 18-wheeler, so I spent some time in an 18-wheeler listening to Merle Haggard and George Jones and, and those guys. So I had a good foundation of music just around me listening to growing up. But I think if I had to put my finger on something that really made me think, man, it would be really cool to do that, it had to be Elvis. And it was the live via satellite from Hawaii concert, and I remember probably third or fourth grade when that came on. And I remember watching that and just being totally mesmerized by it, by what he did. And, you know, the magnetism that he had and the art that he had for performing and, and the way he drew you in. And he was just the ultimate rock star, I think, at that time for me. 
And that was country artist Tim McGraw, born this day in history in 1967. And that is this day in music history. Aloha, Hawaii, USA. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about everything. Love, death, music, sports, film, faith, and of course, when it hits the road, when the rubber hits the road, public policy. And occasionally, we bring you thought-provoking pieces and thought-provoking writing. And in the Wall Street Journal, we bumped across just such a piece. It was titled, Can You Love God and Ayn Rand? And it was written by Jennifer Grossman, the CEO of Atlas Society, which promotes Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy. And we're fortunate that Jennifer joins us now. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You know, Jennifer, I love to start with something very simple. For people who hear the title, Can You Love God and Ayn Rand, well, a lot of people think they know who God is, but they have no (laughs) idea who Ayn Rand is. For people who don't know who Ayn Rand is, and for people who do, talk about Ayn Rand's childhood who this woman was and who this young girl was and and how she became the woman she was. She was born in 1905 in St. Petersburg. Her parents were Anna and Zinovi Rosenbaum. They owned a pharmacy. At the time, it was, uh, you know, over the years, Russia was not always a very hospitable place for the Jews. History of pogroms and uh, discrimination and violence and St. Petersburg was a place where Jews could live, and and uh, being in uh, pharmacy was one of the only professions they could have. And her father uh, was very hardworking. I think this is first where she began to admire industry and productiveness and entrepreneurship. Um, and she uh, she was a very bright young girl. When she was six years old, she taught herself to read. She had two little sisters, Nora and Natasha. And when they were 12, there was a big commotion outside their apartment. And so the girls gathered around the window, and they saw in the streets marching and fighting and rioting. And it was the Russian Revolution. And uh, and a few days later, when uh, she was in the store helping her father, Soldiers came in, and they said, well, we are liberating your store in the name of the people, in the name of your brothers. Right. And they uh, had guns, and they took um, her store and the family's money. And they also, this was the early days of home sharing, you know, the home sharing movement that we now do yep. as Airbnb. They said, and you'll be sharing your apartment with everyone <laughs> who's ever worked for you. Um, so the family fled to the um, Ukraine and then later to the Crimea to try to wait out what they thought might be a passing um, a thing. But of course, it went from bad to worse. And by the way, a couple of stories remind us of this. You know, we did uh, the Billy Wilder story, the man who brought us Some Like It Hot, Judgment at Nuremberg, and so many other great movies. And he escaped Nazi Germany and uh, a different kind of totalitarianism. And we also did Mario Andretti's story. And he, his, after World War II, his family fell under the spell of Tito. That part of Italy, his land, all of his land was confiscated, his father's. And he lived uh, essentially uh, as a refugee uh, in his own country for seven years before coming to the United States with nothing. So in, in large measure, many of these European and Russian emigres uh, had a similar stories, didn't they, Jennifer? 
Yes, absolutely. And um, I also find again and again uh, people that are attracted to Ayn Rand, for example, uh, we do these art contests because we try to communicate artistically, creatively with stories. And one of our artists is a, a Polish refugee of communism. And like Ayn Rand, came to this country and was very much dismayed that communism and socialism was being romanticized, was, was glamorous. And so Ayn Rand was first and foremost a storyteller, and I'd say she is one of the greatest storytellers um, of the 20th century. And for those of us that believe in limited government, constitutional rule, she is perhaps the only storyteller that brought drama and romance to these ideas. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, going back to that Billy Wilder for a second, his first screenplay is Ninochka. And if you remember the scene, uh, the great actress st- stumbles out of the train. She's a com- commissar from Russia. She's coming to America, and they greet her at the train station, and they, say, and they say something like, how are things in Russia? And she goes, the mass trials are a success. There are fewer <laughs> but better Russians. Um, yeah. and, and she said it with all the earnestness of a, of a committed communist, and here was Billy Wilder poking fun. And in the end, it, it turns out Ayn Rand had this, had this heart for literature and drama. Talk about that fundamental part of her, of her life as she then considers coming to America, and talk about her journey to America in the mid-1920s, Jennifer. Absolutely. So, as a little girl, she was very bored by her classes. She was always the brightest one in her class, and so she started writing stories. And she had uh, discovered Victor Hugo, um, Les Miserables, and he always remained her favorite author. Um, And so I, I think as a little girl... She felt a little alienated from from those around her, and she turned to storytelling because she didn't find the kind of people around her that she could admire. She wanted people that were not run-of-the-mill in her life. She wanted heroes. She always said she wanted to look up to people, and so her literature is different than kind of postmodern literature in which it's more journalistic. I mean, her books would never like make the Oprah book club. These are not about dysfunctional, you know, uh, neurotic people. They're stylized characters. They're heroes. And so um, even after the the revolution, the Bolshevik uh, revolution, in which um, her family really uh, was on the brink of of starvation for so many years, and I would recommend one of my favorite novels of Ayn Rand is We the Living. It was uh, her first novel. I think she wrote it in 1937. I could be wrong about that. But it was her most um, autobiographical novel. And... um, so even after the, the revolution, there still was cinema, and she would go to the movies constantly, and she would rate them all. And so this is where she began to dream of, a, of another place, America, where she might be treated as an individual and where she could follow her dreams. And so she managed to, uh, it's kind of a miracle, get, get a visa um, out, and she had to convince the authorities that she'd be coming back. She was just going to go over to evil capitalist America to learn about screenwriting and filmmaking so she could come back to, uh, to the Soviet 
union and make better propaganda. <laughs> and, and so, um, so she, she set out, she said goodbye to her, her parents, her family. Um, she knew that she would likely never see them again. They knew, but I mean, it was like throwing a baby out of a window and, and just the only way that she might have, um, because there's no doubt. I mean, she would have ended up in a in a gulag. Yep. This was abroad. She couldn't keep her mouth shut. That's right. And <laughs> so, uh, and and then also it was again kind of a miracle that she was let in because this was right around the time when there was a big crackdown on numbers of Jews that could come into the country. And once again, she had to convince the authorities in the United States that well, she she had a fiance back in in Russia and of course she would never leave him and she 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 got here she went from New York to Chicago where she had relatives and she stayed with the relatives until they got sick of her cuz she was typing 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 all night long she just had so many she was 21 years old and this is 1926 so this is i i like to remind people who love to talk about conservatives and, and our war on women, this is one of the greatest feminists of all time. I mean, in the true sense of the word, of, of people asking for human rights, not women's rights, people right. asking to be treated as equals, as individuals on the content of their character. She came five years after women got the right to vote. Was she whining? Was she complaining? Was she talking about, like, she didn't have this or give me that? No, she, she, she did it. She made it. She went out to Hollywood. She took any scrappy job she could, and she just was on the look for opportunities. She placed herself where she might catch a glimpse of, of Cecil B. DeMille, and he saw this dark-eyed, intense <laughs> young girl and talked to her, and she jumped at the chance, and, and her English was still pretty broken. But again, by, by then, for many, many years, she'd been watching and rating movies, and so she did get a, a job as an extra, and that's how she met her husband, and also reviewing scripts. And these were in the silent movies days. And hold that thought. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation and the story, because that's the key here, the story of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand now in the United States squarely and in the heart of a burgeoning film industry, again, that didn't even have talking or sound yet. It was silent pictures. But my goodness, folks like Cecil B. DeMille saw something in her. And boy, we're going to learn why and what he saw after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Jennifer Grossman on Ayn Rand's story when we continue. And we continue our conversation and the story of Ayn Rand. And we're joined by Jennifer Grossman. And we are on with Jennifer because of a column she wrote in the Wall Street Journal, Can You Love God and Ayn Rand? And we wanted to get into who is Ayn Rand, two of the most influential books of the 20th century that are still selling today. 
and you'll see them in college campuses. You'll see them in, in bookshelves of friends and neighbors, and you're wondering, what are those two books, Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged? Who wrote them? Well, we're talking about the lady who wrote them, and what a story. She's in the United States. She's at, and of all places, Hollywood. Again, a male bastion. There weren't women directors at the time. There weren't women screenwriters, but there she is, pushing her, her way in, not complaining, but just moving. And Jennifer, talk about that formative time in her life, in her 20s and 30s, in which she really, I think, probably learned a heck of a lot about storytelling from some of the great story masters in world history. Yeah, so uh, when she was hired by uh, DeMille, and she was um, screening a lot of these scripts, and she was starting to, to write a little bit, I mean, she really got a sense of what made for a good story. You know, what was the narrative arc, um, integration of uh, character, of plot, of theme. And true, it was sort of in a time when there were a, a certain kind of style of, of storytelling. There, was, there were often these love triangles. And so you can see the, the love triangles that play out and sometimes love quadrangles <laughs> in her stories. And she, I think, had been just storing up all of these ideas. And she, she was self-critical, very self-critical. And she knew that she wasn't quite ready. So when she was about, it was about like maybe 1930 or so, she got married to uh, Frank O'Connor in 1929. And then she starts to, to write. And she wrote Red Pawn, which she sold to Universal Pictures. She started to write plays. Um, she wrote Woman on Trial. Then she wrote Night of January 16th, which opened on Broadway in, in 1935. Uh, and she was starting also to make the, the first notes for The Fountainhead. One of the interesting things that happened with the night of January 26th, it eventually got made into a movie. But in the movie, she saw that they turned the heroes into villains and the villains into heroes. So this was, you know, very frustrating for her. And she decided this was never going to happen to her again. Yep. And it uh, also gave her the idea of an artist that would not compromise his integrity, his ideals for the sake of others. And that's where this idea of Howard Rourke, an artist, an architect, an entrepreneur, came to being. Yep. She wrote The Fountainhead. It got... Uh, rejected 12 times. Mm -hmm. And so to me, just as a woman, as a person, a lot of inspiration, we all go through that in life, right? How many times have we had an idea and it's not popular and people make fun of it and it gets rejected? And I, for me, that kind of perseverance, that kind of grit that y you need to be an entrepreneur, and a storyteller is kind of an entrepreneur, is something that has inspired me in my ups and downs in life. Yeah, if, I, if, if anything, i just written a very lengthy piece on the making of The Godfather. And what we learn is mm -hmm. the battle between art and commerce and Coppola just pushing and pushing like a, almost a Steve Jobs-like character in his sort of relentlessness to just have that movie made the way he wanted it made and not the way the studio executives wanted it made. And this is something deeply embedded, I think, in most artists. They're entrepreneurs and they just don't know it. Um, but they're fighters for their ideas. And it's interesting that she ends up in this form called the novel, because in the novel she has total artistic and creative control of everything. And, and that had to be uh, uh, something that was almost, it was almost refuge for her. It had to be at some point, Jennifer. 
I think it was refuge. I think in a way it was an escape. And in the same way that reading a book, reading a story, watching a movie for us can also be a little bit of a form of escape. I really liked what you wrote in a piece that you published back in in 2012. And it was very, it was very influential in, in my thoughts in the way that I've approached reinventing the Atlas Society. And there was a couple of lines in it in which you said, stories, not facts, are the way people process information. Screenplays, plays, scripts, and stories are packed, not with hard data, but with something more powerful and human, emotional data. That's why we remember stories long after we've forgotten facts. Stories stir our souls. And to me, that is one of the most important things about Ayn Rand. She was the first writer who talked about business, who talked about capitalism in romantic, heroic terms. You know, before that, we had Adam Smith, Ben Franklin. Uh, we would talk about capitalism in sort of these fastidious terms of the Scottish Enlightenment. You yeah. know, it was all kind of about tinkering. And in a way, maybe we needed our our Joan of Arc, you know, our greatest dramatist of uh, freedom to, co- to come from Russia, to actually bypass the Scottish Enlightenment and bring that drama of Dostoevsky and Rachmaninoff to talking about freedom and to talking about capitalism and talking about hustle. Uh, my friend Jeffrey Tucker says that before Ayn Rand, the conversation about capitalism was merely intellectual. After Ayn Rand, it was deeply spiritual. And that's why I think she's so important, because she's a kind of gateway. You know, this is something that people read, and they get switched on. And then they go and they read Adam Smith and Hayek and von Mises. It usually doesn't happen the other way around. That's right. No, it's true. And it is the gateway. It is the gateway and a portal uh, into a, a philosophy, ultimately. And I, I've always thought that every fiction writer is working on something. I live in Faulkner country, and Faulkner wrote, I believe, the same novel over and over. I think Hemingway wrote the same novel over and over. I think Bruce Springsteen writes the same songs over and over again. There's just different <laughs> characters. But most great writers are obsessed with certain themes, certain conflicts, and then they populate their stories with characters. And she was writing at a time, Jennifer, when, let's think about it, Arthur Miller, Clifford Odets. Um, all, the, um, all the, the, the sort of kitchen sink realist novels of the time, Dreiser, were all basically saying that capitalism is brutal and, and unions are good and collectivism is good. And meanwhile, you, as you'd said, here comes this victim of totalitarianism and collectivism, and perhaps she knows more about capitalism than anybody who'd ever been born here before. Talk about the milieu she was writing in, because so many of the other great American writers, from the theater to novels, were actually taking the opposite approach, and that is that, the, that the, whoever was running a business was the bad guy. Not just was he not heroic, he was the bad guy. She had a very different approach than uh, a kind of journalistic examination of the the worst and of the mundane. Yep. She, she wanted to talk about a better world. She, 
in the Romantic Manifesto, and after she wrote her uh, Atlas Shrugged, she turned to writing more um, nonfiction. And one of her books was called The Romantic Manifesto. And actually, at the Atlas Society, we do reading groups where people can sign up, and, and there's a conference call, and we have an expert walk you through. And in uh, The Romantic Manifesto, she defined art, all forms of art, as recreation of reality according to the artist's values. And uh, and that's what she was doing. And in a way, some of these other authors were doing that too. But their values were, were very different. They believed that everything was subjective. They believed that the capitalism was bad and that, you know, government and lawyers and all, all of these other professions were the good ones. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, all, all writers and all artists reveal their sense of life, their values, in the kinds of art that they produce. You bet. And the great line, all autobiography is fiction and all fiction is autobiography, I think is deeply true. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jennifer Grossman. And the conversation is about Ayn Rand, her life story. And when we come back, more on Ayn Rand's life. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our conversation with Jennifer Grossman, and she is the CEO of the Atlas Society, and we're talking to her because of a column she wrote in the Wall Street Journal called, Can You Love God and Ayn Rand? And before we had dug into this column, we had to answer the question, who is Ayn Rand? And I think we now know a lot more about this woman. And then the question becomes, what was she really writing about? What was her governing philosophy of life? And I think it was deeper than just capitalism and what, what it's what capitalism unearthed and that's human potential and in the end she also had a philosophy which came to be known as the objectivist philosophy and tell us how she came up with it what were her beliefs about god and what originally attracted you jennifer to the work of ayn rand she believed in, in objectivism that reason was man's only absolute that we needed to use our minds in order to survive. She believed that life was man's standard of value. She believed that we had a right to pursue our happiness. We had a right to live for ourselves. She believed she was very against self-sacrifice. She believed that we did not have a right to sacrifice others to ourselves, or we shouldn't sacrifice ourselves to others that does not exclude benevolence and empathy and generosity. Now, in terms of religion, it does a little bit go back to the story and the context of her life. You know, on one hand, her family was Jewish, and she was coming out of an era in which, I mean, it wasn't like that they were big fans of the Tsar, the white Russians that had been trying to uh, exterminate Jews with pogroms for centuries. And so she did not think of religion as necessarily 
um, a good thing. She believed in human potential, as you said. And so I think as a teenager, she said, well, if uh, religion and God is something placed above man, then I don't like it because I think, you know, man should should be um, supreme. And then she came to America at a time when people were questioning religion, and they were um, there was a lot of conversation about atheism, and it had become quite fashionable as well. I mean, there's no doubt she she was an atheist, she was a secularist, but when I read Atlas Shrugged and, and The Fountainhead, and my parents recently reread them, I think most people can read those books and they can they come away with some themes, but I, I've never heard of one person reading those books and saying, oh, okay, well, that, that's it. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. Right, right. As a matter, as a matter of fact, I hear opposite stories of, of people that say that now they're going to, t- to re-examine their faith, and maybe, maybe their faith comes out more strongly. But in objectivism, you know, reason and faith are, are not compatible. She believes in conviction. She believes in uh, things that have evidence. But this idea for this column grew out of my Draw My Life video. So I, we did this first Draw My Life video of Ayn Rand, and it got over a million views. It got 11,000 shares, and it got thousands and thousands of comments. And I was deeply involved in looking at those comments. And I was seeing occasionally that people would say, oh, Ayn Rand's an atheist. Don't read this book. She's an atheist. And then, and then I was really curious. So I would go into that person's profile, and I would kind of look at the groups that they're liking, and the people that were saying that weren't, you know, Christians. So they were somehow deciding that they, that they could use this argument as a way to discourage people from reading the book. I was also seeing people that were saying how much that they had benefited from reading Ayn Rand, and yet they were religious. And I was meeting people in, that were friends, um, Andy Puzder, who had given me this incredible story of how, as a Catholic, he had had each of his six children read both The Fountainhead and Mere Christianity in order to get their driver's license. And then Randy Wallace, the great screenwriter who wrote Braveheart and Secretariat and We Were Soldiers, Southern Baptist, he was such a fan of Ayn Rand that he wrote, for, kind of for a song, the screenplay of Atlas Shrugged that Lionsgate had commissioned for Angelina Jolie, which tragically never got made. And I, I asked him over lunch, I was like, well, you know, what about this argument that, I mean, aren't you some this kind of contradictory that you are a big Ayn Rand fan and then you're whooping it up at your at your church every Sunday? And he said, no, not at all. I mean, my faith is so strong. I'm, I'm not challenged by that. And I didn't really take that away from the books. So I began to formulate a hypothesis, and I'm not given to conspiracy theories, but I began to think that, you know, maybe the left say, this, this woman, these stories are powerful, and they are seducing far too many people into learning more about history, about economics. We've got to stop this. What is the greatest vulnerability in the Ayn Rand hull? Well, it's the atheism, and we live in a, a religious country, so let's just focus our fire on that 
And, you know, it's, it's been effective. And I also think if you just watch the Mike Wallace interview with Ayn Rand, Mike Wallace, never a defender of religious liberty, never a defender, never really talked about God. But the one time he starts to bring up God is to discredit Ayn Rand. And by the way, I'm a Christian. I live around many Christians here in Mississippi, and we have no problem with atheists. And why would we? Our God doesn't tell us we should be doing anything or condemning atheists. That's that's your issue and your relationship with with or without God. And what you, you do agree with with many folks who are on the right is that the bigger the government, the smaller the person and the more, smaller the citizen. And by the way, I translate that into the bigger the government, the smaller the church. Less for us mm. to tithe, less for us to give. So these big bureaucratic systems that cripple the individual, that cripple businesses, Ayn Rand was writing about that. And anyone who cares about the size and scale of government as it relates to our day-to-day freedoms has to say they love Ayn Rand or they're, they're not reading the book correctly. Amen to that. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, last but not least, I think there's always an internal contradiction between faith and reason. And, you know, when I started to read, and I'm, I'm a Baptist, but yet I was handed a book from a, a guy I know real well who is also a Baptist and said, you got to read this Pope Benedict. And Benedict, in his book on the life of Jesus, uh, had written a line that I thought was fascinating. If science is a valuable ally of faith in our understanding of God's plan for the universe, faith also directs scientific progress towards the good and truth of mankind, remaining faithful to that original plan. And I think what he was saying is faith and science don't have to always be in conflict. And I think it's a, it's a false conflict often that's constructed by people who want to who harm both, and these boxes that we sort of create. Uh, there have been great Christian scientists. You know, the head of the National Institute of Health is a Christian and has written eloquently about science and faith. So talk about those two things, because I think so often people think they're in conflict. Well, and of course, Einstein was a big, very spiritual figure who said that God does not play dice with the universe. But I, I think that there are degrees. I feel that, you know, you have on one extreme practicers of religion who and and faith who only rely on what they believe is revealed truth to them right and they they never kind of you know cross reference that with reality and that can lead to pretty bad results including self-destructive results. So, I mean, there can be levels of of self-denial. On one hand, it can be about delaying instant gratification. On the other hand, it could be uh, suicide bombings, Yep. you know, or uh, denying yourselves the full joys and wonderful pleasures of of, uh, our lives here on Earth. But then there are others that they derive a lot of benefit from their religious communities. Uh, I am a member of my synagogue in uh, Malibu, and I, you know, I'm not uh, religious. I am spiritual, and I enjoy community, but uh, I was brought up in a, I like to say I was brought up confused. My mother uh, was a Catholic, my father is Jewish, and they experienced a a lot of prejudice, uh, and unfortunately, from my mother's side, I wouldn't say prejudice, but there was a suspicion of, you know, these Jews from up north, and um, my mother wanted my father to uh, sign a paper saying all the kids would be raised Catholic, and yep. so they almost didn't get married. They had to elope. But uh, for me, it's it's really been more of a, a journey, more of an exploration, and I believe that these two can can live 
together. But I, I do believe at the end, I mean, objectivism does place reason as an absolute. So it does encourage you in your daily life, if you have a conflict, then you really should think it through and you really should weigh the evidence. You know, if you're going to be deciding whether or not to go in and bomb a country, doing it, you know, with a prayer group is, is probably not probably the best, not best means of doing it. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. And Jennifer, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for uh, getting at the heart of Ayn Rand's story. Uh, the Atlas Society CEO, Jennifer Grossman, we had her on, explain and walk through Can You Love God and Ayn Rand, her column in the Wall Street Journal, and you can Google that. And also, the, the Draw My Life uh, videos, uh, how can we see those, Jennifer? How can we catch those videos? Well, thanks for asking. So I would recommend, please go to the Atlas Society's page on Facebook. Please follow us there. You'll see Ayn Rand's Draw My Life. And then we did a Draw My Life of Dagny Taggart, who's the heroine of Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. We did Draw My Life of Hank Reardon, who's one of the heroes. Uh, and then also you'll see the clips that you referenced before. The Mike Wallace interview is played there. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, The Life of Ayn Rand and Jennifer Grossman, CEO of the Atlas Society. Mm-hmm.